0: You probably know that the Bible is the world's best-selling book. Most people also know that the Bible contains the Old and New Testaments. But did you know that it's actually a collection of books and that it's written by 40 different authors over 2,000 years? It includes different genres too, like historical narrative, songs and letters, biographies, legal documents, parables and poetry. Written at the crossroads between East and West, the Bible influences cultures all around the world in advertising, the law, the calendar, language, medicine, education, politics, in fact everywhere we look. In art, it's long been a rich source of inspiration for musicians, sculptors and painters. The Bible makes an appearance in some surprising places. Think of movies like Star Wars, The Shawshank Redemption, Magnolia, Pulp Fiction or Twelve Years a Slave. It may not be the Bible as we know it, but they're great Bible stories retold in new creative ways. The Bible has also inspired countless people who shaped our culture. Think of Florence Nightingale, who was the founder of modern nursing and an avid Bible reader. In more recent times, someone like Archbishop Desmond Tutu was inspired by the Bible to fight apartheid in South Africa. Others like Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador or Martin Luther King in the United States were motivated by biblical ideas of equality and justice to fight for economic justice for the poor and racial equality for African Americans. It was King who famously quoted from the book of Amos in his I Have a Dream speech, saying, We will not be satisfied till justice rolls like the waters. We will not be satisfied till righteousness rolls like a mighty stream.
1: Jesus must be decided, for the Bible to speak so. Little ones do him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Every single year, the Holy Bible sells over 100 million copies. And that is with hundreds of nonprofits all over the world giving them out for free. The Bible is also the world's most stolen book. Because most copies are offered in hotels and hospitals and other places, some people tend to take them. The Bible has been translated to over 700 languages. The term Bible comes from the Greek word ta biblia, which means the books or the scrolls. Uh, Much of the Bible was first passed down through storytelling. Families would tell each other over a campfire, walking along a path together. And it began to be written down on something called papyrus. Uh, It's a form of paper that comes from a plant and it would be rolled into a scroll. But papyrus is not very strong, in fact, it's quite delicate, and it would disintegrate within a decade with constant use. Uh, In the second century, we have the invention of parchment. It's another form of paper, but it's made from an animal skin, and it lasts much longer. And then even later, we have a codex, uh, the beginnings of what we now would call a book. In your Bibles, if you were to go to Matthew and then grab the page and then go all the way over to the book of John and grab the page there and you hold that section, those four Gospels together, that was one of the first codexes um, ever created in the world. And it was passed around from New Testament church to New Testament church, this this codex, this book of the four Gospels. It was always those four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Never five, never three. There's this St. John fragment Uh, It's called P52. It's a fragment from a papyrus codex written in Greek. It's generally accepted as the earliest New Testament fragment that we have available, dating from around 100 to 160 AD, just within one century of the actual time of Jesus. The front of the fragment contains lines from the gospel found in John 18, and it's the story where Pilate asks Jesus, he's confronting Jesus, and he says, what is truth? This fragment, like all ancient parchments, is remarkably close to the translations that we now have of the sacred scriptures. The history of the Bible and how it has been preserved and copied, it's astounding. There is no other book like it in the world. In its composition, over 40 different authors. And that is very different from other holy books of other faiths. The Quran was given to one man. You either trust him or you don't. The Book of Mormon was delivered by an angel to one man. You trust him or you don't. With the Bible, you have over 40 different authors. Over a span of over a thousand years, all writing from different places, in different contexts, in different perspectives, and yet there's this beautiful cohesion, all of them pointing towards or looking back at the person of Jesus. It is surprising for some of us to learn that the Bible was written by people, that it wasn't dictated. It was in real people, real places, real life situations. It was inspired by God, but it was not dictated by God. Parts of the Bible were, for sure, but it didn't fall from heaven. Certainly not in its completed form. In fact, it wasn't combined into one book that we have it now today until 367 AD. Now, this book is unquestionably the most controversial, the most influential, the most consequential, the most inspirational book on planet Earth. I love the Bible. I read the Bible. I study the Bible. I remember when I first fell in love with reading the sacred scriptures. I was 19 years old. I was living in Southeastern Africa. We were living in a place that had no running water, no electricity, and I was there for six months. And every night, at a wooden desk, I would get a candle and place it on the desk, light it, and open up the Bible. And I started at the beginning and I read page after page, story after story, poem after poem, history after history, gospel after gospel. And I just fell in love with God's Word. For the next six weeks, we are going to journey together in discovering and perhaps rediscovering this amazing book. And I wanna encourage you to attend all of these uh, Binge Reading the Bible series, whether if you miss on a Sunday to watch it online, to go back um, and watch it on YouTube or our websites, because we won't have time in a 25-minute sermon on Sunday to fully discuss all the questions that might arise about this great book and this series. And that's a huge reason why we want further discussion in the midweek. Um, Whether that's going to coffee and discussing with family or friends or someone here at the church. Or if it's being a part of one of our small groups. We want to encourage you. We're offering several different small groups. And even those who are watching online, we have some Zoom groups available. You can find those on our app and website. But they, they are intended to be a part of the community wrestling with the Bible and how it points us to Jesus. We want to encourage you to do that this season. All right here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 23. You shall have a designated area outside the camp to which you shall go. With your utensils, you shall have a trowel. And when you relieve yourself outside, you shall dig a hole with it and then cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God travels along with your camp to save you and to hand over your enemies to you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. What? My guess is you probably have never heard a sermon on this text before. But if you happen to be 150 years old, you might have heard a few sermons on this text. Because in the 1880s, believe it or not, you could find preachers expounding on the biblical teaching from Deuteronomy 23 about where one should relieve themselves. Why? Well, because in the 1880s, indoor plumbing was becoming widely available for the very first time. And churches began to debate its merits. See, before that time, when someone felt nature's call while they were at church, they would leave the building and go to an outhouse. Suddenly, parishioners all over America began suggesting that everyone would benefit from modernized plumbing in their churches. Now, no one today would ever suggest that a church should build outhouses. You won't find a church in the last 75 years that lacks indoor toilets. But in the 1880s, when indoor plumbing was just becoming this new innovation, this passage in Deuteronomy was taken by many to mean that God was against indoor plumbing. The argument against bathrooms in the building went something like this. When the Israelites were in the wilderness heading towards the Promised Land, the Lord was with them as they traveled. God made his residence in their midst. And since churches were understood as God's house, places like the Israelite encampments in the wilderness where God was with his people, the same rules must apply to where one would relieve themselves. An outhouse was literally outside, away from the church, whereas indoor plumbing brought toilets inside of God's house. So it wasn't unreasonable to argue that God would find it unholy or indecent for believers to go to the bathroom inside the church. And in fact, many preachers made this argument from their pulpit. Pulpit is where they made their arguments from. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And this is not the only strange command that we find in the Bible. The New Testament says more than once that we are, as the church are to greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't remember the last time I received a smooch on Sunday morning. Okay, You are flagrantly disregarding the clear teachings of Scripture. Now, we realize almost intuitively that there is a cultural gap between the New Testament audience, the Old Testament audience, and us here in the 21st century. And the Bible is teaching embedded principles, right? To greet one another with a holy kiss was a way to to, to show affection that was culturally appropriate in that time. So the, the, the embedded principle is greet one another in a way that is affectionate and culturally appropriate. Now, there are tons of these cultural and contextual commands in both Old and New Testament. What are we to do about them? Because we want to be faithful to God's word, but how do we know when a scripture was meant only for that time period back then, and how do we know if it's something that we should be applying right here, right now? And this is something we're going to be wrestling with for the next six weeks. In fact, this is something that we're going to be wrestling with for the rest of our lives. The Bible is not a book that you can master. It's not a book that behaves according to the rules that we place on it. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. The Bible is not an answer book, but there are answers in the Bible, but that's not what makes it valuable. Like a math book, okay? You know that the answers are in the back of the math book, okay, and if you don't, if you're a teenager and you don't know that, flip to the back, the answers are there. But the value of a math book is not that it contains answers. The value of a math book is that as you wrestle with the questions, as you dig into the problems, you yourself become wiser. You grow. You mature. You become better. The Bible has answers, but it doesn't give answers in the way that we would expect an answer book to do so. It gives them through the medium of narrative, of poetry, and of first century letters. Let me say it a different way. Rather than an answer book or a rule book, the Bible is more of a land that we go and we get to know by hiking through it, exploring its many paths and terrains. The land is both inviting and inspiring, but also unfamiliar, odd, at points unsettling, even risky or precarious. But I believe that God encourages us to explore this land, all of it, It's strangeness, it's beauty, it's wonder, and we need to wrestle with it patiently, with discipline, in community, and above all with the sense that we are joining a long line of people for thousands of years who have gone before us. And we will come to know ourselves better and God better as we accept this great challenge of the Bible. When you give up the Bible as an answer book or a rule book, you get it back as something so much better. Well, what is it? Here's our thesis. And here's not only the main point of my sermon today, but this is the main point of the entire sermon series. We're gonna be repeating it throughout. We believe in the authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of God, and his name is Jesus. We read and study the Bible to better follow and love Jesus. We're going to be unpacking that statement over the next several weeks. And I believe that the Bible gives us this emphasis. The Bible is to us what the star was to the wise men. It leads us to Jesus. So let's dig into the Bible. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. It's the first book of the New Testament. And we're going to read this story together. Verse 1. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was to say so because they were frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. May God bless the reading of this word. This story is called The Transfiguration and it is found in Matthew and in Luke as well. So Jesus takes his core disciples up onto the mountain and Jesus is transfigured. The the Greek word is metamorpho. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. He, He becomes something different, dazzling, bleached white. And then Moses and Elijah show up. Well, who are they? Moses, he's the lawgiver. He is the embodiment of the Torah, the first five books of the scriptures. And who's Elijah? Well, he's the iconic prophet, the quintessential prophet who was taken up to heaven. So to say Moses and Elijah was a shorthanded way of saying the law and the prophets. And that's how the Hebrew scriptures were called back then. Uh, The law and the prophets. Jesus says himself, to summarize the law and the prophets, it was one way to talk about the Old Testament. Moses and the Torah is like the full moon shining in the night. It gives you enough light in the darkness to navigate forward. The prophets are like the starry constellations in the night sky. They too provide some light. And if you can read the constellations, you can uh, navigate by the stars. In a pre-Christ world of darkness, the law and the prophets provided the light for people to move forward. But with the coming of Christ when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, when the logos, the logic of God became a human being. Well, this changes everything. This is the sun now rising in its strength. What happens to the moon and the stars when the sun rises? They recede, they fade into the background because the new day has dawned, because God could not say everything he wanted to say in a book. So he said it in a person and his name is Jesus. Look at verse eight. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. In the Greek here, it is even more drastic and more stark. They saw no one but Jesus himself alone. It emphasizes that it is all about the singularity of Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. Wait, what are you saying? Are you saying that Jesus is above the law and the prophets? Yes. Are you saying that Jesus has more authority than the Bible? Yes, and I think that the Bible tells me so. The Bible is not a how-to book. It's a here's who book. What the Bible does infallibly is point us to Jesus. First and foremost, it tells everyone Here is who Jesus Christ is, and therefore, here is who you are and who you need to become in light of this. Later on in the same chapter of Luke's gospel, the disciples are having a difficult time understanding this. Uh, And so in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to, to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Do you want us us to get them, Jesus? Because that's what happens in the Bible. Actually, it happens with the prophet Elijah the one they just saw on the mountaintop. It's right there in the good book. The disciples are right. There is a story in the Bible where Elijah calls down fire from heaven and consumes people who reject him. There's, in that story, there's a bad king who wants to arrest Elijah. So he sends a messenger with 50 soldiers and then pff, fire from heaven, they're consumed. When the bad king hears about this, he sends another group, 50 more soldiers, one more messenger, poof, drone strike. They're, they're gone, they're on fire. 102 people dead. So Jesus is not welcomed in a village. And not just any village, a Samaritan village. The half-breeds, the compromisers. And the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to get them? This must be God's will. It's right in the Bible. Jesus says, the Son of Man didn't come to destroy, but to save Do you see how you can use the Bible to silence Jesus? This has been the case throughout much of Christian history. If we have ears to hear, we must listen to the father's voice at his son's transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We're not called Biblians. We're called Christians. We're not people of the book. We're people of the person. It's not about biblical principles, it's about Jesus. See, you can appeal to biblical principles and condone all kinds of terrible things. This is the danger of the Bible. People have used it to justify horrific, awful things done in the name of biblical principles. The Bible does not present in either Old or New Testament a clear condemnation of slavery. It seems to accept it as an inevitable institution. But for the Christian, that doesn't matter because in the light of Christ, we come to understand that every human being is made in the image of God and has intrinsic worth and we are to treat them as we would wanna be treated. As followers of Jesus, we help take the chains off of humanity, not put them on, That's from the light of Christ, not from biblical principles. Wars of conquest, violent retribution, institution of slavery, women held as property, they're all biblical. But when placed in the light of Jesus, these primitive assumptions must be renounced. What was once acceptable in the dim light of Moses and Elijah is now rejected in the light brighter than the sun, shining from the face of Jesus. Today, Moses and Elijah, the Law and the Prophets, they do one thing, they point us to Jesus. Someone might ask me, do you follow the Bible? I would say no, I follow Jesus. I read and study the Bible in order to follow Jesus better, to love Jesus better. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. If you're reading the Bible, and you're becoming more judgmental and less loving, you're doing it wrong. If you are reading the Bible and you are becoming more hateful and less graceful, you're doing it wrong. The main teaching of Jesus centers around this thing he called the kingdom of God. His kingdom was his message and his life and example demonstrated this kingdom. So if we follow Jesus, we lean into that. And the kingdom isn't just something that we get when we die, no, it's something that we try and bring here on earth as it is in heaven. God's will, God's reign, God's peace, God's love. We pull it from the future and into the present. I would like for you to engage in a thought experiment. And it is going to take some imagination. The first thing I want you to imagine is a time machine, okay? Uh, many are probably coming to your head. Maybe it's, it's some little box with lasers. Um, maybe it's Doc Brown's DeLorean from Back to the Future. I don't know, but you need a time machine because you are being sent back in time to Montgomery, Alabama, 1850. And your task is to go to the First conservative Church of Montgomery and convince them to change their stance on slavery. Good luck. Okay, what would you say? How would you go about it? I would suggest that you tell the truth. Tell them you are from the future and tell them about the future. Tell them about a coming war that will be horrible beyond their own imagination. Tell them about a tall man born in a log cabin in Kentucky. Tell them about the Emancipation Proclamation. Tell them about a 14th Amendment and the wrongs that it would try to right Perhaps you could take them much further into the future. Tell them about a woman from their own town who will become famous because she refused to give up a seat on a bus. Tell them about a preacher from Atlanta who's named after a great Protestant reformer who will one day be a pastor in their city. Tell them about this man's dream, how he will die a martyr's death and change a nation. Tell them where the future is headed. You might say it like this, my dear Christian friends, I am from the future. I am a prophetic witness of that which is to come. And the future does not belong to you. The future does not belong to your system. The future does not belong to slavery. Slavery has no future. And if you continue to align yourself with it, it is destined to be abolished. The future will hold you in contempt. The future belongs to freedom. The future belongs to equality. The future belongs to justice. And if you were to preach, That message in that church in 1850, you'd be lucky to make it out alive. But you would, in essence, be saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. We are to be a foreshadowing of heaven, heaven here on earth. We follow the risen Christ who transcends every point in history and every culture. Following Jesus moves us away from law and moves us into love. Jesus says he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He doesn't get rid of Elijah and Moses. He fulfills Elijah and Moses. You know what the best part of reading the Bible is? It's it's when you close it. When you close it and it's finished because now you have a chance to apply it to your life to see if it really means something more than its pages, that's when you can live it. To memorize scripture is great but to metabolize scripture is best. Let it get inside of you. Do its work inside of you. And open your heart to the Christ it points to. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we grow in our appreciation, our love of the Bible. We thank you for this amazing gift that you have given us. And God, as we read it, may we be conformed to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us for week one of Binge Reading the Bible here at Prodigal Church. For the next 30 days, we're encouraging our church to do just that, to binge read the Bible. And so we've got a Bible reading plan on our app and you just click Bible and each day it'll be one or two or three chapters from the Bible. It takes you through the grand narratives, just a great chance for you to dive into the scriptures, to learn, to love and follow Jesus in a greater way. Also, we want to encourage you to get a real paperback Bible. Screens are great, but the studies show that we learn best um, by having a tangible book in front of us. And so we want to encourage you to do that. We're giving out some today at our Sunday morning worship experience. Um, But find a Bible, find some time, and let's binge read the Bible together. We look forward to next week. Peace in the Middle East.